Hey brothers, welcome to the Men of Valor podcast. My name is Casey McCauley, and this episode we will continue looking at the signs of Jesus. The timing of our study is uniquely designed to prepare our hearts for Easter, to remember and reflect and rejoice in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As this study leads right up to the week of Easter, we can see how each sign gets closer and closer to the ultimate sign. As Pastor Greg said in our first study, Jesus was preparing his disciples for the ultimate sign, his death and resurrection from the dead. At the end of this gospel, after Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples, the Apostle John provides commentary about the purpose of what he has written. Chapter 20, verses 30 to 31 describe how these seven signs of Jesus were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The sign leads to life, and belief leads to life in Jesus's name. We have abundant life in Jesus on earth and eternal life with Jesus in glory. He is the resurrection and the life, and he gives us life in his name. So as we study each of these signs, may it point you to the ultimate purpose, the ultimate sign, and may it prepare your heart to celebrate the Christ who lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, rose again in victory, and now rules and reigns and will soon return. So with that perspective, let's look at two signs that are covered in lesson three of our study. It's the healing of the nobleman's son and the healing of the lame beggar listed back to back in the text from John chapter 4, verse 48 to chapter 5, verse 18. Two unique signs with different needs, different circumstances, different desperation, and yet the same solution, the Savior. In the first situation, you have a man of great wealth desperately trying to find help for his son who is on his deathbed from what seems like a sudden illness of a fever. The second situation consisted of a lifetime of suffering, a man with limited resources, no mobility, who was physically disabled for 38 years with hope always feeling out of reach. Two people who couldn't be more different both find themselves in a situation where the only option they have is Jesus. Whether it's urgent or prolonged with many resources or no help at all, the point is clear. Jesus is the one who makes all the difference. And that's what we need to remember when we're in need. And when other people are in need, we need to point each other to Jesus. Who do we first turn to? What do we first turn to when we're in need? There are so many things that we can turn to that ultimately won't meet our deepest needs. Brothers, let us first look to Jesus and find in him everything that we need. For he is the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God. As we read about these two signs, we can feel the emotions in them. It's the real needs that we experience coming to Jesus on behalf of our children when we're helpless as parents, coming to Jesus with a sickness or a physical need. These two situations remind us of the need for healing all around us, that we live in a broken world that is groaning to be made whole. Suffering affects everyone, no matter who you are. The nobleman, the lame man, we all have a common need. And even beyond the suffering, as Jesus will point to in these stories, we are all sick with sin. Our greatest problem is not physical, it is spiritual. And that's why all of Jesus' signs point to the greater spiritual truths. He meets our daily needs, our desperate needs, but he ultimately meets 
our deepest needs. He is a savior for sinners. Consider how we see the reality of this in the way that Jesus first responds to both situations before the healing takes place, one with a statement that Jesus makes and the other with a question Jesus asks. Both of these get at the heart of belief. Again, remember, the purpose of the signs were so that they would believe he is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. Let's first consider the nobleman. Jesus travels from Samaria, where we read about the amazing encounter of the woman at the well and the belief of the Samaritans. Now Jesus is back in Cana in Galilee, where his first miracle at the wedding occurred. A man finds himself in a situation he can never imagine. His son is deathly ill with a fever. He's described as a royal official, a kingsman, a nobleman. He was probably an official in Herod's court, which meant he had power and influence and wealth. We can assume he had exhausted all of his resources for his son to get better. He came to the end of himself, and it's in that place where no money could buy, no person could help, and nothing could relieve that he looked to Jesus. He heard that Jesus was nearby, probably only about 20 miles away. So what did he do? He didn't call for Jesus to come. He didn't send a servant. He went himself. He asked and begged for Jesus to come and heal his son. And Jesus responds in a surprising way. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. This response can seem confusing and even cold, right? But Jesus is getting to a deeper reality. You see, Jesus just came back from Samaria, where there are Samaritans, those who were non-Jews and outcasts, and they believed in Jesus without requesting or receiving a miracle. It was his spoken word. John 4.22 says that they heard for themselves and that they knew that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So now Jesus is back in Galilee. As John 4.45 shows, these Jews welcomed him because they had seen his signs. I'm sure they were interested in what else Jesus could do for them. And so the first interaction Jesus provided was an opportunity to show that he doesn't just provide a solution, he provides salvation. As it's been observed, Jesus' rebuke was not solely aimed at the nobleman just himself, as he used the second person plural, you, essentially saying, unless you people see signs and wonders, you people will not believe. This was a message to all in Galilee, who may have focused on the signs rather than what the signs ultimately point to, the greater spiritual reality that they represent, which is that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus isn't a miracle worker. He is the Messiah. The Samaritans believed by his word, and this nobleman and his family will ultimately believe by his word as well. Jesus responds simply by saying, go, your son will live. And it says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. That is ultimately a great description of faith. Faith is taking God at his word. It's to believe what Jesus has said, to stand on it, to trust in it, to take God at his word. He had to make a journey back to his son. Imagine the doubt and fear and anxiety that could creep in in this gap of time. But he believed Jesus's word. And sure enough, at the hour Jesus said his son would get better, he did. And he himself believed and all his household, the text says. 
Jesus was not a miracle worker or a unique physician with some special medicine. He simply spoke and the son was healed. Only God can bring such life into existence with his spoken word. This is illustrative of what Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. What a beautiful picture we have of a Savior who speaks life and speaks truth and speaks power, meeting us in our desperation. In the second healing, we go on to read about how Jesus responds to the situation in another surprising way. We read about the setting at the pool of Bethesda, where there were many people in need of physical help, the blind and lame and paralyzed. And Jesus saw a man who had been ill for 38 years. Of course, this was a long time to be sick, as some estimate that the average life expectancy in the first century could have been around only 40 years old. So his suffering was lengthy, but it was also severe. He was physically disabled, where even he says that he can't move to make his way down to the pool. Some take this to mean that he was a paraplegic. So it seems that this man may have spent his entire adult life by the pool, looking and waiting and hoping for healing. Some looked to this pool thinking it had special healing powers, but the problem is that someone else would always beat him to the pool because, well, he couldn't get there fast enough. So Jesus sees that he was lying there for a long time and asked the intriguing question, do you want to be healed? The answer might seem obvious, but Jesus can ask it in this way because he is the one who can actually heal him. He does not ask to add insult to injury like someone else asking who couldn't heal him. Knowing Jesus could heal him, Jesus asked, providing this man with an opportunity for belief. And this is illustrative of the gospel call. The message has gone out into the world and it evokes a response. It is not assumed. It must be decided. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want eternal life? Do you want to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior? So this man explains his problem and that he is utterly helpless to get to the pool by himself. And Jesus responds, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Wow, what a picture. What a relief. In a moment, after 38 years, this man's life is completely changed. No one else could help him. No one would carry him because they wanted to get to the pool first themselves. But insert the Messiah. As predicted in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6, the lame leaps for joy. And the result was a tremendous blessing for this man, but also a critique from the Jews. Verse 9 makes the dramatic note, now that day was the Sabbath. This was an amazing miracle, such joy and happiness. Now enter the plot twist, the tension, and the conflict. Instead of rejoicing with this man, the Jews tell him that it isn't lawful for him to take up his bed on the Sabbath. This wasn't explicitly found in Scripture, of course. It was one of the 39 laws that Jewish rabbis had developed regarding what conduct should and shouldn't look like on the Sabbath. But Jesus wasn't around the scene any longer, and the man didn't know what was going on. But verse 14 picks up where Jesus finds him in the temple and says, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. We don't know this man's story and what ultimately happened to him. Was his illness just the simple result of living in a fallen world? 
Was it a result of sinful choices that impacts our bodies? We don't know. But Jesus gives a warning ultimately about sin, which again reminds us of the spiritual realities and the ultimate point of the signs, that sin is serious and we must embrace Jesus as our Savior. Sin is crippling, but Jesus provides freedom. The narrative continues, and the man who was healed tells the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And the result is that the Jews persecuted Jesus because he did this on the Sabbath. But verse 17, Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is an amazing response. The Jews accuse Jesus of, quote, working on the Sabbath, and yet Jesus flips the script on them. Was God violating the Sabbath by working acts of providence and healing? The healing of this man, which they didn't even mention. As it's been observed by Jesus making this statement, he's framing the question, would the rabbi's teaching ultimately lead Jewish leaders to accuse God himself of breaking the Sabbath? And ultimately, this leads to a greater charge and accusation against Jesus, that of blasphemy. Jesus says that the Father is working and that he is also working. He was claiming to be equal with God and that his works were the very works of God. And that's why the commentary in verse 18 is so crucial. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Commentator Anthony Silvaggio provides some insight on this interaction. He says, The defense of Jesus against the charge of the Sabbath breaking seemingly played right into the hands of the Jewish authorities. As Jesus began attracting larger crowds of people, the Jewish authorities became increasingly obsessed with finding a way to take his life. They were particularly looking for a charge worthy of capital punishment. When Jesus claimed that he was equal to God the Father, he provided the Jews with a way to use the law to achieve their wicked heart's desire. To claim that one was equal with God was blasphemous, and blasphemy was a capital offense. The Jews had brought Jesus in on a charge that was equivalent to a modern traffic ticket, and he confessed to a charge equivalent to premeditated murder. It was a prosecutor's dream. Wow. And thus we see the journey to the cross develop, leading to Jesus' crucifixion. But in verses 19 to 24, Jesus defends himself against the charge of blasphemy. And how could he do this? Well, he could only do it if he was truly the Son of God, the Word made flesh. And in that passage, he claims to do the work of God, to know the plans of God, that he has the power to give life and the right to give divine judgment. Wow, this scene escalates quickly, doesn't it? This sign led to a greater reality that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the Jews had a problem with it. Why? Because the healing itself signified a greater reality, one that they would have to deal with themselves. That the same question would be asked of them, do you want to be healed? And their answer was no. They didn't see their need for Jesus as Savior, as Healer, as Redeemer, as the Messiah. How can we respond to these signs? I love the question in our workbook in the application section. Both Jesus' third and fourth signs warn against only seeking what Jesus can do for us rather than seeking Jesus as Lord. Do you seek Jesus' face as often as you seek his hand? What a great question. 
In conclusion, we see in both of these stories how Jesus gave far more than what was asked of him. He graciously provided physical healing, but ultimately offers spiritual wholeness in being right with God. To embrace him as the Christ, to truly find life in his name. And so, brothers, let us see the glory of Jesus in these signs, looking to our Savior who meets our deepest needs when no one else can, when nothing else can, that only Jesus saves. Amen. God bless you.